A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. Welcome to the snake pit, Frank Lampard. I'm sure the venom will come as no surprise. After all, he was an accomplished political operator as a player and should never be underestimated as a manager. Was he schooled by Jose Mourinho in midweek? I'll leave that to you to decide. But there's little doubt the pressure on him is multiplying. Chelsea historically demand results. Now, I know it's ludicrously early in the season, Jordan, but does he need one against Palace on Saturday? No, I don't think he needs to win this game this weekend. I think the pressure is slowly building on him. I've had question marks over Frank Lampard, and I'm going to give him this season to prove to me that he is a guy that can take a top team like Chelsea to where they want to be. I think he needs a performance I think he needs to show that he can get that Chelsea team performing. I don't think he'll be judged by results just yet. But what I do think he needs to do is show that he can tactically set up that Chelsea team and integrate some of those new signings in a team that can actually show the early signs of a team that can go on to, to win enough games to compete for the title. So I don't think it's quite yet he needs to win this game. If he loses, it won't be good. It won't be good if he loses. But I think what's more important at this stage, even for sceptics like me, it's not that he wins, it's that he shows me that he can integrate some of those new signings. And I think that while I've got question marks over Frank Lampard's tactical ability, I have a little bit of sympathy for him in the sense that it seems to me a lot of those players that have been signed weren't players that he necessarily asked for. I think the Chelsea hierarchy have given him those players and therefore the inference is we're giving you top players, make it work. And if you can't, we'll find someone who, who, who can in a way that I think Arteta at Arsenal, my club, I think he's asking for the players that he wants. So there's a bit less pressure because they're the guys that he wants sort of thing. So no, I don't think it's a must win. I think it's a must prove you can integrate these players. Mm, yeah, it does, does say something there, uh, Jordan, doesn't it, about modern management. And Amory, you know, we, we know that, that management is a very pressurised, immersive profession. And it's something that you can't do straight off the bat and be um, excel straight off the bat. He's, he's facing on Saturday at the bridge, Roy Hodgson. What do you think are the lessons, the enduring lessons of, of Roy's very long career for an emerging manager like him? Well, first and foremost, Hodgson has a, a fantastic reputation. And I think the one thing that stands in good, in good stead is adaptability. If you think about the number of teams that he's coached in England and abroad, the fact that he can speak two or three, maybe four languages, he's managed national teams 
as well. He's won plaudits for what he's delivered. I think he's won the LMA Manager of the Year several times. And I think, you know, somebody who's been able to play in in different countries and work with different teams and different clubs, you have to be adaptable. And I think that's one big lesson that, that Frank can take away. Derby County is very different from what Chelsea is. It is another level. And it's a case of, for Frank, particularly looking at the team and working out who his best 11 is. And I think that's something that Hodgson does very well for Crystal Palace. He knows who his best players are. He knows how to set them up. He's got a good, strong tactical awareness. And you like to think so after many years in the game. I know that Hodgson can be accused of being a bit dull and boring, but you cannot dismiss what he's achieved in the game. And I think the other thing as well is, is being able to deal with the media. And I think that's something that Frank has developed over time, for sure. That would be the second thing I'd take on board, that... Again, Roy will say as it is, sometimes some of his comments do raise an eyebrow here and there, but he does tell it straight. And I think something that is something that Frank is looking to do more and more and give more insight into why he decides on certain things and, and team setup. But also dealing with the pressure when results are going wrong. Hodgson has had that, particularly with England, as we saw the, the ugly outcome when they went out via Iceland. He didn't. I don't think he particularly behaved in the right way after that, but he still came out for the press conference. And I think that's something that, again, that Frank is going to have to learn how to manage those uncomfortable conversations when results don't go your way. Yeah, I've seen him have some spectacular grunts down the years, haven't you? I suppose when you look at a player, sorry, when you look at a manager, you assess what he was like as a player, not in terms of performance, but in terms of character. And at Chelsea, he took time to win the fans around. I suppose the questions, Jordan, are about his tactical acumen. Palace on Saturday, what about their capability on the break, You know, largely through uh, Will Sahar? Is that likely to worry a defence which is pretty creaking at the moment? 100%, definitely, Mike. If, if I'm Roy Hodgson, I'm going to be very unashamedly, my approach would be very blatant in attacking that, that, that Chelsea back line, which doesn't have a lot of pace. You know, look at Christensen, Zuma, uh, Alonso going the other way isn't particularly quick. If Silva plays, there's not a lot of pace there. And one thing Palace do have is a lot of pace. I would also, if I'm Roy Hodgson, test the, the goalkeeper. So assume, assuming that Edouard Mondi starts in goal for Chelsea, with, with the scrutiny that's been around Kepa as a Riza Balaga in the last few months, Edouard Mendy is coming into a situation where, like it or not, there's pressure before he even starts in the Premier League because he's now expected to be significantly better than Kepa. If I'm Roy Hodgson, I'm telling my strikers and attackers, get shots off. Get shots off early. Let's see how good this guy is. Let's see if he can if he can handle the pressure of being Chelsea's new number one. That first five minutes, anything inside 30 yards, get your shots off. And I think if Lampard is, is, is smart, he'll be preparing for that because this is a really big test of where Chelsea are weak against where I think Palace are particularly strong. So this is where I'm talking about. I'm not quite convinced about his tactical acumen. The only game, funnily enough, where I did see Lampard, Frank Lampard, show his tactical prowess was against Arsenal last year at the Emirates where half I think it was about 35 minutes of the game he brought on Jorginho and took off a defender and it changed the game and they won the game 2-1 apart from that I've not seen enough from Frank Lampard to show that tactically he's really the guy and I think this is going to be an example this weekend of where I think he needs to show people like me that he can step up to the play mm, yeah mentioning Jorginho there you know there's some talk that he might be on his way out as part of the the inevitable squad churn when you get Expensive players coming in, you know, there's some talk that um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek will either be sent out on loan or, or sold. 
I just want to ask you, Anne-Marie, about Ross Barkley. He's, he's joined Villa, who seem to be getting their act together in terms of recruitment. Do you think they can get a tune out of him? I think they can, very much so. I mean, in terms of Barkley, he's been at Chelsea since 2018 and he's been pretty much a squad player since then. And with the arrival of Kai Havertz, another attacking midfielder, he's fallen down the pecking order. And if you want to play regular football, you have to make that decision to move on. I think it's a, I think it's a, a massive coup for Villa, actually. And you also, don't forget, Ross Barkley wants to play for England. And I think there's an opportunity for him to de- develop a a creative partnership with with Jack Grealish. And I think also Villa are showing some serious ambition as well. I mean, Emmy Martinez, which still hurts me to the core, I've got to say, for as an Arsenal fan, seeing him in a in a Villa shirt. Ollie Watkins, of course, from, from Brentford, Matty Cash, Bertrand Traore. Villa are showing some real ambition. And as I said, I think having somebody of Barclays' quality is a massive coup for the villains. Yeah, I didn't realise I was part of the uh, Guna Massive today. Um, uh, <laughs> what about, uh, okay then, I'll throw Spurs in the mix. Um, you know, they're playing, every, they're pretty, pretty much playing every day at the moment, aren't they? Which is a nonsense. Uh, they're at Man United on Sunday. There's a background of increasing dissent with their transfer dealings. It was interesting, you know, Jason Burt in The Telegraph today had an interview with Monchi, the director of football at Sevilla, who was basically saying, I can't believe Man United don't have a sporting director. There is a sense of uh, almost panic. Usman Dembele trying to get him on loan. They're trying to barge in on the Juventus deal for Federico Chiesa from Fiorentina. What's going on at Man United, not on the pitch, but off it? I think it's an embarrassment what's happening there, Mike, at the moment. I think United are not only the laughing stock of English football, I think of international football, and I'll tell you why. Manchester United are one of the biggest football clubs and biggest sporting teams on the planet. And I think we've now seen, and we are still in this post-Fergie era, that they have fallen off not only on the pitch, but off the pitch. This, this Just the Sancho deal for me, whether this deal does get done or not, it's looking less likely than, than more. Whether Even if they sign him, I think it's embarrassing because if you are a big club and you identified you want Jadon Sancho, who, by the way, I don't think is the guy they should be going for anyway, but if he's the guy you identify that you want, you get it done. Big clubs don't faff around with, with, with and, and turn these things into sagas. United are turning themselves into a saga. And I think it seems to be this desperation that stinks of, well, we can't get Jadon Sancho, so we're going to go for Saar at Watford, or we're going to go for Dembele at, at Barcelona, or we're going to go for any... There's no plan. It just seems to be any winger that's gettable, we're going to try and get that winger. And I think that's very embarrassing because I think that they're playing a game with Dortmund of blink, and I don't think Dortmund are going to blink anytime soon. And I think that unless United end up getting Sancho for the fee that they initially wanted to get him for... I think this is really embarrassing for Manchester United, a team that doesn't have the infrastructure at board level to be able to get these deals done. I mean, they're back in the Champions League. This deal should have been done days after they confirmed top four, and it hasn't been done. So I think the need for some kind of hierarchical leadership has been needed for United since since Ferguson had left that club. But I think they've become a little bit of a laughingstock in terms of how they get deals done. And if they don't get any deals done between now and the window closing... I think they're going to leave Ole out to dry here because while I'm not convinced about him anyway, they need to at least give him some players that he needs to be able to give him, give him the best chance of succeeding. Yeah, you, you said that you wouldn't go for Sancho. Who would you go for? I think they need defenders. 
I think they need defenders. I mean, I've, anyone that listens to me, I'm banging on about Harry Maguire. I think Harry Maguire is average. I think Lindelof is getting all the heat. And while I wouldn't want Lindelof anywhere near my football club, if you look at the entirety of last season, Maguire actually made a lot more mistakes than Lindelof. And I don't know if it's because Maguire's English or it's the price tag. I think Harry Maguire's a good centre-back no more. I'd be looking to get at least one centre-back in, Luke Shaw. I don't think Luke Shaw is good enough for Manchester United. I was going to be looking at a left-back. And I think another midfielder that can actually... McTominay's back, back up, it seems, to, to, to Matic. But I still think they need another, another midfielder in there that can, that can go box-to-box. Box. I know Van der Beek can do that, but that's not, for me, his primary and what I think he's best at. So I think before they'd be looking at £100 million on a Dembele or a Sancho, I think there are defensive issues there that they need to address before splashing out on a, on a, on a top, top winger. Yeah, Emery, what are the reasons for Jose Mourinho to be cheerful? You know, I don't know whether he'll actually take up that invitation. Let's start with uh, Sergi uh, Reguilon. Dynamic fullback or, or wingback. Can he defend? Does he need to defend? Oh, yes, very much so. Right? He needs to re- defend. I think Reguilon, I've got to say, I think he's been slightly overshadowed by Gareth Bale's return because we've barely heard anything about him and he has made an appearance already for Spurs. I mean, the first impression I got that he was quite solid Reminded me of those early days of, of Danny Rose when he had that left back position. I mean, I, I appreciate that uh, Regillion gave the ball away in the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes of that game. But he did remind me of those early days of Danny Rose and he is able to go forward and defend. So that should be able to make Jose cheerful for the time being. But the big issue that Spurs has right now, and I do have some sympathy for them, even though they are the noisy neighbours, is their congestion calendar. It's horrendous, the number of games that they've got coming up. And already Mourinho has said publicly that he's worried about Harry Kane, particularly with these England internationals that are coming up and also their own games as well. So I think there isn't actually, Mike, a lot for Mourinho to be cheerful about right now. He's got some genuine concerns. Anne-Marie, can I just ask you, though, what's the alternative? Because there's a lot of people that have sympathy for Spurs when they're, they're, they're pile up. But if we're going to have a congested, oh, sorry, a, um, a condensed season because of, of, we know what, COVID, I don't understand, I don't know what the alternative is. It's not, it's not ideal, but I'm not sure what the alternative is. There is no alternative. I can well, empathise the, the alternative, the alternative would be a, a club like Spurs taking a strategic option. Look, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna enter the Carabao Cup, or we're gonna play our under twenty three team. That's pretty much what they could. That's the only thing they can do. Now, Mourinho whether that's fair, that. I don't know. Yeah, but Mourinho has said that he. I mean, he was. I don't know if dismissive is the right word, but he did intimate that he put out a not his usual eleven for the Carabao Cup, and they still went ahead and won it anyway on penalties against Chelsea. Look, I think. Perhaps there is an alternative. I don't think there is. I think the fixture is what it is, what it is. But I can still sympathise because I would be concerned about play welfare, regardless if it was Spurs or another team, because there is a lot of matches and there's not a lot of rest time in between. But it is what it is and they just have to to get on with it. But you look at their schedule, having to fly to Macedonia, Bulgaria, then, you know, Southampton, Newcastle, Chelsea, Maccabi, Haifa, and then United. That is a lot for a team to deal with, particularly when two of your top players within that team are not 100%. And I'm talking about Son and Harry Kane. So I feel a little bit of sympathy for them, but it is what it is. And and maybe Jose Maria will do exactly what you said, Mike, and pull out maybe from the next round of the Carabao Cup. I doubt that because they need a trophy. And winning the Premier League is, is not something that they're going to be able to do. 
FA Cup, potentially the League Cup is the other option. And I think that's the thing that hangs over their head. The fact that there is an empty trophy cabinet at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and Mourinho is under pressure to deliver a trophy this season. Yeah, one thing Jose Mourinho hasn't lost, Jordan, is that ability to stretch a small squad. Now, it looks like Harry Kane's getting a backup, Carlos uh, Vinicius, alone with a £36 million option from Benfica, 24 goals last season, which is pretty handy. Okay, it's a small squad, but it's a small squad that's not using Deli Alley. Why? I think that Jose Mourinho, when he first came into Tottenham, thought that he would make Deli Alley his guy. I think he gave him an opportunity to prove that he could be the guy. Because let's let's be straight, this is not a poor run of form Deli Alley's going through. This is almost three years that Deli Alley's not been the Deli Alley we know of three years ago. I get it. I don't, again, a bit like Maguire, I think Deli Alli is a very good player, but I don't think he's so good that you'd be breaking your back to keep him, especially if you can get a nice chunk of change for him. I think that Deli Alli is a victim of the Pochettino change at Spurs. Deli Alli was a shadow striker that came into the box, picked up the scraps and had a very good eye, a bit like Lampard, had a good eye for runs and being on the end of, of, of loose balls and getting those 15 goals a season. When Mauricio Pochettino changed the system at Spurs, it, it, there wasn't a role then for Deli Alli. I don't know where Deli Alli fits in terms of what profile of club he can go to. I don't think he can go to a club bigger than Spurs in England, but you think he's better than a... I don't know. Is, is 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 he better than a Wolves? Is he better than an Everton? Did, did, would Everton want him now? I'm not sure they would want him anymore. So I think Deli is in a very, very difficult position of, it's clear that Jose isn't having him anymore. But the bigger problem is, is who is? Who who is going to take up Deli Alli? Because I'm not quite sure if he's good enough for a PSG or a Real Madrid, but he's better than a, a Palace or a or a, I don't know, or, or a Brighton. So he's in a really weird area in his career of what, of what he does next, I think. Mm. You mentioned international football there, Amory. England squad named this afternoon, Thursday afternoon, about two o'clock. Looks almost certain that Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden will be dropped as a fallout from uh, Iceland. This international break ahead, being realistic, do you expect a rash of withdrawals after this weekend? Because, you know, to your point about Spurs' commitments, something's got to give, isn't it? I think so. I think there will be a, a, a rash of withdrawals over the next few days or so. And, and no disrespect to Wales, but it's, it's a friendly against Wales. And I don't even think Gareth Bale probably playing that because he's still recovering from injury. So I appreciate Gareth Southgate needs warm-up games for his teams, but I just think with the calendar at the moment, I think that is one match that could have been left by the wayside, to be absolutely honest with you. And I and I have issues with the Nations League anyway. As much as I enjoy it, I do wonder if that could have been left by the wayside too. So yes, I expect there will be a, a rash of withdrawals purely because of the fixture list for the Premier League for the majority of the teams within, within the league itself. Something has to give. The one thing I wouldn't want is for a player to have a serious injury and then be out for the majority of the season for their team because it is such a congested calendar. So, yes, the short answer is I will expect to see some rush of withdrawals over the next few days. Yeah, the, the players are the piggy in the middle here, aren't they, Jordan? You know, we're also seeing elsewhere across Europe that, that clubs are being forced to re- release players for World Cup qualifiers, which, you know, by definition, in, you know, includes long journeys. It's my sort of pet theory that one of the victims of the lockdown and the pandemic will actually be international football, that it's a habit that 
we as a nation, or as a nation of football supporters, seem to actually be on the way of just forgetting a bit. A little bit, a little bit. I think just to kind of agree with Anne-Marie's last point, I think you'll get a lot of, not only withdrawals from players, I think you'll get a lot of managers in the ears of players saying, look, just, just, just pull out, just pull out. You don't, you don't, you don't need this. Doing a, doing a Fergie, eh? I think so. I think you will. I think you'll get a lot of players pretending they, they've got a strain on their car for, you know, making up injuries. I don't want to speak too disparagingly of these players, but I think you'll get a lot of managers orchestrating a lot of these pullouts. But yeah, I think that there's a, there's a fear and a danger this in this next 12 months that international football does very much hit the back burners of people's priorities and people's consciousness. Because I think there's going to be so much football, domestic football. I think there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of oh, it's internationals anyway, and I think that more so than, than ever, I think there'll be even more of that. So, I, and I wonder if the quality, well, the quality will dip because if you're getting top players pulling out of internationals for one reason or another, I think it's going to make people even less attracted to international football at a time when FIFA and UEFA are trying to, with the Nations League, make international football a bit more sexy by pairing up nations with playing teams that are a bit more on their level. So, yeah, I, I, I share your concern there. Yeah, I suppose you know, one of the things is always struck strikes me. If you go to a, a Premier League training ground during an international week, it's like walking into a ghost town, isn't it? So let's take Man City as a good example. You know that the Etihad will be deserted next week. On Manchester City, Amory, are they drifting? If you look at it, they've lost ten of their last thirty-six Premier League games, and compare that to Liverpool, who've lost ten out of the last hundred and twenty-nine. I read somewhere yesterday that Leicester had spent around about £334 million in their entire squad in the last 10 years. And then you look at what Man City have spent on defenders, the £400 million. Oh dear, the mind boggles. I think teams have now sensed there's a weakness in Manchester City and they're looking to exploit that. There is now a weak link in their armour. And I think for me... Pep Guardiola has the biggest job on his hands this season, not only dealing with the pressure of Champions League, but the Premier League itself. To go another year without winning the title, I think will be extremely heavy on his shoulders. And Liverpool look hungry for it already. They look well up for it already. So I think there is pressure from top, bottom, side, left, right for Guardiola. He's getting it all right. I mean, look at him on the touchline. Sometimes... He doesn't look as animated like he used to do back in the day. And I there's I don't want to say there's a weariness, but I think there's a realisation that this is a really, really tough job for him this season. And dare I say, maybe potentially make or break for him, because I know that you know, there's so much talk about whether he's going to be seeing out his career at, at Manchester City or will he look to move on after this year or maybe the season after that. So... I think they are drifting. I think they're missing Sergio Aguero, Aguero immensely. I don't think that backline is solid as it's supposed to be. I think also looking at Kevin De Bruyne, he's a fantastic player, but they can't rely on him solely for their goals. So I think there are areas that teams can exploit. And as we saw at the weekend, one team did that spectacularly well. I remember getting battered back in February for saying I thought Pep Guardiola was massively getting off the hook in terms of their season. Then the title was over at Christmas and then to go out to Lyon and only win the League Cup. I think that he was massively, massively afforded a big break that I'm not so sure with the money he'd spent that he should have been afforded. Now, people would counter that by saying, well, there were two seasons where he did something in the Premier League that we've never seen before. So we had credit in the bank. So I, I can kind of accept that maybe. But last year was unacceptable 
or for Pep Guardiola. And I think that there's, I remember hearing, I think it was Jamie Carragher this week talking about that he thinks that this new signing of Diaz, he will, that will be what makes or breaks Pep season this year. If that doesn't work out, they're going to be in big trouble because, as Mamory says, the amount of money they've spent on defenders is actually quite, again, I'm using that word a lot, but embarrassing. And to still not be as tight and solid as they should be, I think this is a huge year for, for Pep Guardiola and Manchester City. Do you think his pride, or actually probably more to the point, his ego, would be stimulated by the presence of uh, Marcello Bielsa in the other dugout at Ellen Road at the weekend? I don't know. I don't think so. I think he spoke very openly about his admiration and the fact that, you know, aside from Cruyff, this is the most influential figure on, on his managerial career. So I don't think there will be, I don't think that will come into it. I think he will just know that he needs to win off the back of that 5-2 loss against Leicester. But I think also there's the element of, even if they'd have beaten Leicester, Man City can't lose to Leeds United. That just can't happen. So there's a double whammy of we cannot lose this game. He'll need a response from that from that defeat against City against uh, Leicester City. And I think I, I think they will get it. I think it'll be a crazy game. I think there'll be a lot of gesticulating, a lot of animated managers on the touchline. I think it's going to be a lot of words thrown at their players and maybe each other. But I don't think ego will come into it. I just think he needs to focus and understand that if he doesn't win this game, Liverpool are going to pull away. And what you don't want to be doing is get into next month and you're nine, 12 points behind Liverpool. Yeah, if you listen to Leeds fans, Anne-Marie, you know, they're basically Real Madrid incarnate, aren't they? Are they living up to the hype? Do you know what? I was in danger of romanticising Leeds' return to the Premier League, but hell, I'm going to run with it. (laughs) (laughs) But they've dealt with it maturely, I think. They have. They have dealt with it maturely. I mean, they lost that opener against Liverpool, but my goodness, that was a fantastic match. And then having wins against, against Fulham, that derby with Sheffield United as well. I mean, Leeds fans must look at the table and think, my goodness, they're seeing Chelsea, Tottenham, Man United and City below them. I mean, it's a dream start for them. The question is, can they maintain that over the match days over the next few months or so? They are fearless. They know how to press. They know how to harass their opponents across matches and they look ready for the Premier League. But the word for me is consistency. Can they keep up that level for the entire season? I would say not, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing them, how they're going to set up against City for that match. Yeah, that could be a bit of a goal fest, or another goal fest, I suspect. You know, we're at the start of the season where we're looking at players making, you know, an immediate instant impact. Jordan, Tarek Lamptey, he's attracting interest from Bayern. Brighton spent three million on him from Chelsea. Bayern are likely to bid more than 20. If you're Brighton, do you take the money and run? No. At that fee, I'm. if I'm Brighton, I want them to treble that. I'm assuming he's on a relatively long-term contract there at Brighton. I mean, unless he starts kicking up a fuss and demanding to leave... Why would you? 20 million? No, no, no. That's 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 um this this guy could be the best the best fullback in the in the in the country in three years' time. I don't see why they need to 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 do that. And I don't think he needs to kind of be a club. I know that the German clubs are very good at developing young talent, but I, I just think he needs to just get his head down, get a couple of solid years under his belt, learning his trade. At, at Brighton and then go from there. This need to make this big jump very early, I just don't always think it's always a good idea. Just stay there, learn your craft. You know, a, a Graham Potter is, is winning me rounds. I'm warming to him. You, you, there's a guy there that believes in you. Just, just stay where you are. There's no need for that. But from Brighton's point of view, if you were going to sell him, I want at least double that. That's, that's cheeky, very cheeky. Mm. 
Brighton are at Goodison on Saturday. Everton are flying, aren't they, Anne-Marie? For the first time in a long time, I'm actually enjoying watching Everton play. And I, I felt the pain for Everton fans over the last few months, the last few years. And they finally got a top quality manager, well-renowned, respected, and bringing in players. James Rodriguez, obviously, De is another, and Allen. They've pretty much stolen the headlines. Richarlison looks happy for a change on the pitch <laughs> because he always looks so miserable most of the time. But actually, he's looking really, really happy. So for me, I mean... Dominic Calvert-Lewin, what can you say about him? His name, by the way, better be on the England team sheet when it comes out in the next... Is it today it comes out or the next few hours or yeah, so? It's yeah, today. today. Yeah, it's today. Yeah. His name. I love the fact that he's sitting at the top of the golden boot race already. I think that's amazing. But anyway, back to the point. They've got a world-class manager. They've got a new stadium development. They've brought in some top, top, top quality players as well. And they're sitting at the top of the table after three matches. Now, again, it's that word of consistency. Chances are they will experience some sort of slump throughout the season. But listen, they're taking some strong victories, you know, so far against Spurs and West Brom and Crystal Palace. So the tide, the life is good at Everton at the moment, but they do need to win a trophy. And I think their win last night in the, in, in the Cup, Carabao Cup assures that in terms of moving to the next stage. But I think for me, I'm excited to see where they're going to go. And if, and if, Calvert-Lewin can stay injury-free, fingers crossed. I think it's looking good for Everton. I was very tempted last week to kind of be the miserable person again and be like, you know, it's not going to last. Everton are going to, you know, they're going to they're going to have this great start. And full but I actually think we're in a very, very unique season where I think there's going to be some crazy results and crazy finishes this year. And if you're Carlo Ancelotti, I think he went to the board. Well, I think he went to the board and said, listen, I'm Carlo Ancelotti. I'm not here to finish eighth or seventh. I'm here to be with the big boys. Give me the money that I need and I will show you that I can mix it. And people are talking about can Everton break top six? I think he's looking at top four. I don't think they'll get top four, but I think he's looking at top four. And I think with the weirdness of this season that we're going through right now, it's not the craziest thing that if Everton finished fourth this year, I don't think it's the... Arsenal at Arsenal, Chelsea, I'm not convinced. United have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Wolves, Leicester, we'll see what happens there. And Spurs have got Jose. I, I don't think... My only concern about Everton is that triangle three of Keane, Mina and Pickford. I mean, they're the three that I think, if it's going to go badly, that's where I'm not convinced about them. But Carlo Ancelotti is a world-class manager, as Anne-Marie says. He, he's not here to finish sixth and seventh. He's here to, to mix it with the big boys. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're looking even beyond top six. It's interesting because, you know, we talk about momentum on an, on an individual and a collective basis. And I suppose in a club here, Amory, you've got a you've got a club on the up. You know, last night, Everton's women reached the FA Cup final by beating Birmingham. Now, this was a club that was bottom of the uh, WSL two years ago. You've got to give Willie Kirk, the Everton ladies manager, women's manager, an awful lot of credit, haven't you? Oh, massive, massive, huge credit to Willie Kirk. Remember, he joined Everton, uh, as you mentioned, two years ago, but he was the deputy to Casey Stoney and Manchester United, took on the Everton job, has rebuilt that squad, and they are now absolutely flying. I must admit, when Chloe Kelly left Everton to join Manchester United women, I was slightly concerned because she's a fantastic and top quality goal striker. And I did wonder where the goals were going to come from, but I don't need to worry about that anymore. Looking at the result from last night, I think Willie Kirk has done a fantastic job for them. The fact they knocked Chelsea out of the FA Cup quarterfinals, Chelsea women is the 
I know people are going to disagree with this, but they are the best team as far as I'm concerned in the WSL. And the fact that Everton took them on and knocked them out of the cup is fantastic. So whoever they meet in the final for the Women's FA Cup, they will be the favourites. It's going to be between City, Manchester City and Arsenal. They will be the favourites, whichever one now progress through the semi-final. But Everton have taken it and grabbed this by the reins. And I'm really happy for them to make this. Yeah, I suppose also what you see at Everton, Jordan, is a club which is benefiting from ambitious and relatively new ownership. Now, if you look across the Premier League, Burnley, you can understand Sean Dyche's frustration with their recruitment policy. Dale Stevens, pretty much an identical purchase for about a million quid. They're waiting to re-energise with a new owner. Some talk about a US group going in there. You've got Newcastle. They also seem to be another club and a team in perpetual transition. <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. I, I don't know what Newcastle want to be because they have an owner that just seems to be content to just tick along and just kind of stay in the Premier League and take a bit of abuse for half of the season and then just kind of like, you know, deflect it to somebody else for the rest of the season. So I'm not quite sure what Newcastle United want to be. I think when I was on your pod the last time, Mike, I mentioned I'm not as convinced in Callum Wilson being the great signing that other people are. I like him. I think he's a good striker. But I think 20 million investment in a guy that has had a really bad track record of injuries, I thought was a gamble on the guy that you're going to bank on to score your 15, 20 goals. I think there are some owners in the in the league that are being that want to be ambitious. But I think, again, going back to this COVID situation, I question how ambitious you actually can be in this particular time. And if the next 18 months, two years for many owners will just be about consolidating. Just stay in the league. Just, you know, just keep our finances as best as, as best we can. Damage limitation for some. And then let's see where we are in 18 months time. So I'm not really sure, unless you're a Man City or a Chelsea, how ambitious you can actually be at the moment. Yeah, well, you mentioned the COVID situation. You know, Liverpool are at Villa on uh, at the weekend. They're, they look light years ahead at the moment. But Thiago, positive test. Is that, Amory, another indication of a growing threat? And is it significant that the clubs are now agreeing to test twice a week? I think it's hugely significant that the club's agreeing to, to COVID tests twice a week. And then now we're seeing positive results. I mean, when I saw the Tiago news, I was just like, oh, goodness. And then obviously David Moyes the other day and a couple of West Ham players as well. The threat is real. The threat is still there. And, it, and I think it also shows that we cannot, as a, as a country, as a society, even within football, that you cannot be complacent and it you have to do as much as you can to minimize the risk and I felt sorry for Tiago because he joined a team that are actually full of confidence he was really impressive against Chelsea I was impressed with his composure and flair and, and now he's got to you know sit out some games for 10 days but then Liverpool from that side of things they've got players that can can step in they've got you know Genie Wijnaldum of course Cater and Fabinho so Liverpool have got answers for every single position on the pitch so I'm not too worried in terms of the loss of Thiago I just think in terms of the covid it is it's just a stark reminder that you cannot be complacent and the results that have come back has shown that Yeah let's let's look at some of the broader issues Jordan if we could thrown up by the pandemic how vital is it that Fans get back into grounds. There is a sense that you could get some sort of compromise with the government. You know, I, I, for the life of me at the moment, can't understand the political reticence because 
you know, let's face it, politicians are all too willing to use the game for their own ends, aren't they, when it suits them. How important is it that we get crowds back in? And, and I'm talking about, you know, maybe 500 in, initially. How important is that? Very important, Mike, and no one has been able to answer the question. I mean, I work in news and I, I speak to people that uh, are correspondents that work in politics and I still can't, and health correspondents as well. And I, no one can still answer the question to me as to why it's okay to all be in groups of six, be okay to be in pubs up until 10 p.m., but it's not okay for a team of a thousand fans in a football stadium, socially distanced, and which is obviously outdoors as well. If there's a genuine medical reason why that can't happen, then I'm all ears and I'll accept it. But nobody can answer that question. I've done some reporting over the last couple of weeks. I was at Charlton this week. I was at Norwich a couple of weeks ago where they were one of the teams that were allowed to have a thousand fans in. And it seemed to work fine. I think that it's been said before, but I think at the lower leagues, if the fans, I think we'll lose clubs. I think regardless, between now and Christmas, unless the Premier League or the government step in, we're going to lose, I think, up to 10 or more clubs. And I spoke to the latest Norwegian chairman this week who also said to me that he's predicting between 10 to 15 clubs. If financial support doesn't come in, we'll just go. They'll just go. That's a, that's a harsh, I think, reality that we're looking at. But I think that the government needs to... I'm no fan of this government. Anyone that knows me, I'm no fan of this government at all. But you've got to kind of consider that every industry right now is banging at the door saying we need a half, you know, a couple of billion to save our industry, the arts, the aviation, the hospitality, sport. So whilst we care about this because this is our industry which pays our bills and we love the game, we've got to think, well, they can't just keep printing money for every industry. And it might get to the point, Mike, where they have to make a decision, the government, about, which is really harsh and brutal, but which industry brings in the most. So does football bring in more than the aviation industry? Therefore, we're going to give football that money to kind of maintain itself. But to just, again, directly answer your question, I think it's very important from a financial point of view that we get fans back in. But I think also from a footballing point of view, I'll be very honest, I shouldn't say this, but I'll be very honest, there are certain football games that if I don't have to watch for research purposes, I don't watch because I just I don't enjoy the spectacle of watching games with our fans. I just don't enjoy it. It's really hard for me to, 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 to get into. And I think what I'm concerned about is people are kind of, it's becoming normalised. People are forgetting now that there are no fans in the ground and it's becoming, do we need fans? If you can pump in sound and you get your analysis, do we need fans anymore? And that's a question I think is going to be asked more and more as the coming weeks and months um, approach. Yeah, I think, well, one of the, it's becoming increasingly absurd, isn't it? You know, you've got at the weekend coming up, Wealdstone are having to draw the curtains at their supporters club when they play Chesterfield because they're showing the game, but the, but the, the fans who are actually at the ground aren't allowed to peer through the curtain. It's a nonsense. And, you know, Amory, are we underestimating or is the government underestimating the fact that football actually has an existing culture of segregation. It just doesn't bung a whole load of human beings in and let them get on with it. The government doesn't trust football. That's it for me. They don't trust football to deliver what can be done. And what they're trying to do, the government, is apply a one-size-fits-all for every single league in England. And it doesn't work. The way the Premier League works is different from the way that the National League works. So why didn't the government look at each league and apply a plan working with the, the governing bodies and obviously the clubs 
to deliver that plan. What bothered me the most when the announcement was made that uh, fans weren't returning on October the 1st is that there was no plan. It was like, let's just pause. And that was it. And obviously I was waiting for the follow-up of, and this is what we're going to do next. And I know there's been a task force announced a couple of days later. That task force should have been announced on the same day of October the 1st to offer reassurance and confidence that we fans can go and watch matches safely. And I think the fact that, you know, Jordan talked about test events, Some, the, as far as I know, all those test events have been successful. So the data is there. And I think what is also particularly galling is when you see other countries like France and Germany are allowing a certain number of fans into the ground. I don't know the infection rates over there, but they are working around it. They're minimising the risk. You can't eliminate risk. I know that but they're working around it. So it must be particularly galling for fans over here thinking, well, if France and Spain and Germany have a plan, why doesn't England have a plan? So it's incredibly frustrating. And that nonsense, Mike, the word you use, nonsense, it's absolute nonsense about Willstone having to draw the curtains and only allowing a certain number of people inside. It's, it, I, I'm just so frustrated with this situation. And I take Jordan's point that it's not just the football industry, it's the sports industry as the whole, it's aviation, it is hospitality, and they are, and people are starting to bang on the door now going, what is the exit plan here? Because this pause cannot continue till Christmas. And I'm somebody that has been affected by this pause, as, as you guys have as well. There has to be a plan. And I'm frustrated with this government, very much so, because Oliver Dowden, I think, has just looked at it as a whole rather than looked at it as an individual case-by-case basis and applied a plan. They don't trust football. That's it for me. Yeah, it's been piecemeal, hasn't it? You know, thankfully, the National League clubs have been assured of government support, you know, about £20 million. Well, that begs the question, why not Leagues 1, League 2? Because they're in equally dire financial situations. But there is, Jordan, isn't there? There's, a, there's an, an elephant in the room, and that elephant is made of solid gold, the Premier League. Now, they're demanding that they want their pound of flesh. If they're going to give the EFL clubs financial support... You know, initially they want they want them to back their uh, their position against the FA on the the global free market on young players. Chairman are talking about blackmail. We keep coming back to this point. You've got Premier League clubs paying you know a billion pounds in this transfer window, and basically saying, "Well, we might help you." They've got to surely, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a moral responsibility from the Premier League to 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 step in. I think it's, I think it's only fair to say the Premier League do, um, as far as I'm aware, um, do give money to the lower leagues every year anyway. But there's clearly um, a need for more. There's, there's clearly a need for more, and with, with billions kind of swashling around the Premier League product, I think also it's important to mention that. The owners are the ones that are the billionaires. The Premier League as a product isn't necessarily a billion pound or billion dollar product. But yes, I think there's a more more responsibility from the Premier League to support those lower leagues. I think that they will. I think the problem may come come in whereby, like any industry, unless you're Amazon or McDonald's, every other business or industry is losing money right now. And the Premier League, for the, the millions and possibly billions that they have, they're not exempt from being hit as well. So they may plea and they may get the smallest violin in the world in response to this, but they may say, well, look, as rich as we are, we're losing money too. So we have to look after ourselves and make sure that we can preserve ourselves. Again, that might not be greeted with a lot of sympathy from a lot of people, (laughs) 
but I don't think any business right now can really, not many can be helping others because I think they have to help themselves. But there, I, th- I think there definitely is a, re- a moral responsibility from the Premier League to to do something in, in supporting the lower leagues. Otherwise, as I said, there'll be just tens upon tens of clubs that by this time next year will just be gone. Possible leagues will be wiped out and the grassroots of the game, which I know that you're very passionate about as well, mm. I think will be seriously affected too. Yeah, it's a pretty bleak picture. Um, I suppose the government are also talking about giving some money to the women's game, Anne-Marie. You know, obviously because of the you know, social importance of sustaining women's football. Is that overdue as well? Yeah, I think it's overdue. Uh, in terms of the Premier League, they did pledge to pay, I think it's around about a million pounds to help restart the WSL and the Championship to align uh, with COVID-19 testing for the new season. And I think with the government looking to talking about money for the women's game as well, I think that's only a good thing. But it it needs to be not just for the WSL and Championship. It needs to be for the grassroots as well. I don't think you could just give one but not the other. So I welcome it. I'd like to see the the detail because the devil will be in the detail. Will this be a a bailout? Or is this a gift or it's a loan? You know, when you exchange money, you've got to agree the terms. So I think it'd be very interesting to see the level of detail. But I don't want to see, like in the men's game, I don't want to see clubs go to the wall. So if there's an opportunity to help from a cash bailout point of view, I welcome it. I suspect that the clubs, some of the clubs in the in the WSL that have a parent club, so the Arsenal's, Man City's, the Manchester United, the Chelsea's of this world, will be getting support anyway. But it's those clubs that don't have the parent club to help them out. I think they would welcome the funds. Yeah, big issues, big issues. Just trying to wrap it up now. Our thoughts for the day. Jordan, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Today is the start of Black History Month. And I am, um, I'll go on record, I'm not a fan of Black History Month. I'm not a supporter of it. But I think also in a week or a day where the England squad will be named, I hope that there is an opportunity for those racists within our game and within our within our sports to really look at the England team as a kind of symbol of England and a reflection of how diverse and fantastic our country is. There's a fantastic documentary. She won't plug it, but I'm going to plug it for her that Anne-Marie's involved in called Coming In From The Cold that's on TalkSport that documents the history and the contributions of uh, black people to our game. And I just really hope if there's one good thing that comes out of Black History Month in a year that's been very racially tense globally, it's the kind of education and the, the 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 knowledge sharing of how black people have contributed to to our our beautiful game and the England team. I think at least half of the England team is either black or of mixed heritage, and that makes me very very proud. So I'm really hoping that that can be a symbol of change going forward. Would like to return the compliment, um, Emery. <laughs> I worked as assistant producer on that fantastic documentary and it, uh, please download the podcast and on your favourite podcast platform is it's called Coming Out From The Cold, The History of English Black and Mixed Race Footballers. It's a fantastic piece of work. My thought for the day is, is a negative, I'm afraid, and you're probably both going to roll your eyes. It's the handball rule. I know there was talk today that the the uh, either the Premier League or the FA are looking to to lobby IFAB about the handball rule issue, and David Ellery's name keeps floating around on social media as well. Look, it's a plea, really. I'm completely confused now about the handball rule. If you were to ask me that question, I couldn't explain it to you because I have no idea how it what it is and how it's implemented, and can it be used subjectively and so on and so forth. 
please, IFAB, I know you're not meeting until March 2021. If there's any chance you could meet before Christmas and sort out this issue, I think it will be welcomed right across the board because I think with VAR and handball potentially dominating the headlines over the next few months, when we actually just want to talk about a great game of football, I would that would be my Christmas present for 2020. Mike, sorry, I know you haven't got time, but can I just very quickly say that on the next pod, I'm going to do my thought of the day on handball and I'm the opposite of Anne-Marie and there's a lot of people complaining and unhappy with it and I'm not at all, but I'll say it for another day. Blimey, I didn't, never expected anyone to say that. But anyway, um, <laughs> and, and if, 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 we're in, if we're in plugging mode, I want to plug a, a documentary that a good friend of mine, Tom Boswell, has done for BT Sport. It's on tomorrow night, Friday night. It's looking at Harrogate in lockdown. It's a fascinating view and I would fully recommend it. Now back to uh, matters football. Look, we've we've addressed some pretty sobering issues today. Clubs with the begging bowl out denied the boost of even a meagre crowd. Yet in this pandemic, for some it's business as usual. According to the Portuguese sports daily Abola, uh, Jorge Mendes, the super agent, has earned 20 million euros in this transfer window. He's moved Ruben Dias to Manchester City and taken Nicolas Otamendi to Benfica in return. He's overseen the arrivals of Nelson Semedo and Fabio Silva at Wolves. Now, assuming he's picked up the standard FIFA-approved commission of 10%, he also earned 4.4 million euros from Diogo Jota's move from Wolves to Liverpool. Nice work if you can get it. He is, of course, very, very good at his job. But in times such as these, do you pause and wonder about the morality of such extravagant reward? I'm sure I do. Anyway, thanks to Amory and Jordan and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.